Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and today I'm joined by film and content specialist Cam Maitland and curator and film historian Alicia Fletcher. If I were to take sides in the famous battle between the Bronte sisters and Jane Austen, I would have to order myself a hashtag Team Austen shirt and turn in my horror movie lover's card. That's not to say I don't love the tropes of the gothic novel. It's just as a teen, I was more into witty, flirty banter than a controlling doofus whose idea of romance was wandering the moors and yelling about lost love instead of actually doing something about it. Although our two movies today don't contain windswept moors, they do fall very neatly into the gothic category. Alicia, before we get into the movies... And before we get into the tropes, are you a Bronte fan? Are you a Bronte fan? No. <laughs> wow. That that stuff you're describing drove me up the wall. Uh, and uh, yeah. I was very locked into specifically Charlotte Bronte, even though there's not that many books, but like something like Jane Eyre was, mm. was my cup of tea. And uh, it's just lesser extent Wuthering Heights. But in terms of film, that was, I think, gothic really introduced me to my love of film um, through those adaptations and then also through silent film if you think about just like gothic tropes you don't really get Jane Austen in silent film you don't get Jane Austen that much in early film to be honest because it's it's, it's uh, banter it's all dialogue that's the problem oh yeah it's hard to make silent <laughs> yeah yeah it's hard to make silent but even like if you look at the 30s and the 40s there is a hell of a lot more Bronte than there is Austen just because of how visual I think um the Bronte sisters were in comparison mm. to Austin. So I was someone who like, I'm still obsessed with an adaptation of Jane Eyre. I've probably seen most of them. I'm not, you know, egotistical enough to say I've seen them all. I'm sure there's some that I haven't, but uh, my God, I love, I love Jane Eyre so much. And anything where there's someone who's mentally ill in an attic, you know, like I know what you're saying with like Heathcliff wandering the moors. That's super annoying. But um, oh, I don't know. My just, sister uh, loved it. My sister was all about it. Wow. So I'm like, I, obviously, it's one of those things that hits here or it doesn't. I think I'm. You're talking specifically about the Orson Welles Jane Eyre, yeah? Um, sure. Sure. Okay. I mean, because that one, I no, love. No, I, I'm not actually. I don't like that one. All right. Um, that one no. was always like him looking intense with like giant eyes. Like, because that's his way of looking intense as he just stares. It's very impressive. At least with that one, he was, um, I'm forgetting the character's name. Who Rochester. Rochester. Yes, or Rochester. I mean, at least he is appropriately unattractive as Rochester's supposed to be. <laughs> one of my favorite Jane Eyre's is uh, a version that we've had on Hollywood Speed rather recently, which is the 2011 mm. Carrie Fukunaga. Oh, yeah. That one I absolutely love. However, it is Michael Fassbender who's very attractive. Yeah. <laughs> so that that one is it too hot or Rochester? Um. <laughs> I get it. I mean, Mia Wachikowska is incredible in yeah. that version. Judy Dench is really good. I, That's an interesting one, fan. too, because I feel like it leans really hard into the horror aspect. 
It does. And I think when we're going to talk about the cell, even what lies beneath today, I actually was thinking a lot about that version of uh, of Jane Eyre. And I would really encourage listeners, if they haven't seen, and even if they don't think they're Bronte or Austin fans, if you haven't seen 2011's Jane Eyre, uh, it kind of got buried a little bit despite mm-hmm. very a lot of critical praise. Um, go see it. It's a, a really excellent horror film. I think the hybridization of both the genres we're talking about, of like the extreme visual of gothic and the horror element is Guillermo del Toro's uh, Crimson Peak is like which really, we love. Sure. which we love. Yeah. It's like the, yeah. the that's Wonderful. one that like I think a lot of people passed over because maybe they didn't get. But that's one of those things that like um, really melds the two genres and kind mm. of, is kind of a perfect example of what that's supposed to look like. I also encourage people to check out, like, uh, as somebody who did a lot of early novel uh, study in my English degree, the original gothic novels are also, like, uh, fucked up beyond belief. Like, the Italian. The Italian is, like, the greatest gothic novel of all time, and no one's read it. The Monk. Have you ever read that one? The (laughs) Monk. That's a crazy one. Yeah, I have read The Monk. And they all have magic rings that allow them to become invisible and watch people have sex and stuff, and you're like, whoa, this is nuts. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, our first movie today trades in the Misty Moors for Foggy New England, and watching it, I couldn't help but wonder what would attract visual effects aficionado Robert Zemeckis to a relatively low-key supernatural thriller. And then I realized, oh, doesn't every director go through a period of wanting to see if they can be Hitchcock? And if you're going to do Hitchcock, why not wrangle some of the best actors you can, including a blonde I'm sure Hitch would have loved, Michelle Pfeiffer, and lovable Grump, who could have stepped in for Jimmy Stewart in maybe, just maybe, Rear Window or Rope, Harrison Ford. It's also a movie that may have been tanked by its marketing. Let's talk what lies beneath. Also, there are going to be spoilers, people. Prepare ye. All right, Cam, Cam, let's go. I mean, uh, the nice thing is we live in a world where it is very easy to talk about What Lies Beneath because it's a film about gaslighting. Uh, (laughs) It is a movie. I mean, I guess gaslight existed before, but now gaslighting is so popular. We all know. Uh, It is a movie where Michelle Pfeiffer and Harrison Ford are a well-to-do, you know, intellectual couple. Uh, Their daughter leaves for college. And when she does, uh, strange things start happening around the house. Uh, Michelle Pfeiffer is at first kind of clued into her next door neighbors who seem to be in some sort of abusive relationship. And as she uh, explores that a bit more, there is maybe a murder she doesn't understand. Suddenly a ghost starts bothering her and she starts picking apart kind of increasingly bizarre and supernatural mysteries, which may be her losing her mind, or it may be really a ghost. I think one of my favorite things when I started watching this was I was like, oh, this is like Rear Window with like the binoculars and everything. And mm-hmm. she's the Jimmy Stewart character, except for her leg isn't pr- broken. She just has crippling uh, emptiness syndrome. Yeah, yeah. It's, it reminds me a bit of like menopause too. There's a, there's a whole metaphor in this film for menopause and, you know, women who have aged out of motherhood and we should say that this is her biological daughter mm. her um daughter's father has been killed in a car crash many many yeah. years ago and Harrison Ford is the like as adopted or the stepfather cuz that will be important soon yeah it is i think that there's a yeah it's an interesting plot because it is they bother like these are incredibly weird complicated characters that have all these different kind of facets and that's partially i think throwing about a million red herrings at you but uh mcguffins yeah, if you will oh, totally there's like a thousand mcguffins <laughs> yes. in this film and, and it ends up being an interesting movie because something like 
solving X or Y ends up actually not being the point of the movie, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, it, it, there, it seems like there's about three climaxes because there's always a... T- mm-hmm. The twist is more like, this plot is not what you thought it was. <laughs> and very much like the empty nest thing is like, yeah, that's just a, a fake out. <laughs> it's a MacGuffin, and there's also, like, layers of reality and memory, mm-hmm. so, and timeline, which... I have to say, I think this film does pull off quite well. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm almost surprised by that because I think if you just plot out the timeline and the various, you know, versions of she has partial amnesia at one point and it's like jarred when she has a fall. It's like it's absolutely ridiculous. And then (laughs) there's also elements of vertigo because you have this Michelle Pfeiffer character who can morph into the ghost played by in her first screen role Amber Valletta who mm-hmm. is a face everyone would have known from like every modeling campaign ever in the 1990s so there's that sort of like blonde um, doppelganger from Vertigo for sure mm-hmm. it's it's a lot there's a, there's even a little bit of you know something like I confess or um, the wrong man in some cases good call uh, I think there's something too in this about having these two like mega stars at this point in time this is right before Michelle Pfeiffer took the hiatus that we've talked about in mm-hmm. previous episodes so this is kind of one of her last ones and same with Harrison Ford this is one of his last ones to like really commit to and getting to see these two people who are not necessarily at the peak of their career but like are both unbelievable actors who have huge history Histories to them that they're bringing to this film. And one of the things I've seen consistently written about is that the heel turn that Harrison Ford takes at the end, spoiler alert, mm-hmm. is based on the fact that you have only really seen him play a hero up into that point. Yeah. That um, you, you have this expectation that at some point he's going to turn around and he's going to save the day or whatever. And he doesn't. It turns out he's the bad guy that's going to try to kill her in a really I, horrible I would, way. I agree with that. Except the if we want to talk about him as a heel, you do have that really incredible scene in Temple of Doom where he's torturing Kate Capshaw. Yeah. And I think there's elements of Mosquito Coast yes. where he's a baddie. So yeah, definitely this is his most heelish. I will also say this is the last era of Harrison Ford having natural looking abs. Yeah. Everything <laughs> after this is like, he's wild. jacked always now, yeah. but it's like, okay, that's not what an average man no. who like watches what he eats and exercises would look like. Um, that's like, you know, a zillion dollars of dietitians and sure. uh, health gurus and, you know, a keto diet and et cetera. <laughs> but he's I like this because it's obviously people in their 40s, if not 50s. In Harrison Ford's case, having a sex life, having um, like a, a, a middle aged woman like Michelle Pfeiffer actually having agency and eroticism. And they at the beginning, they film they dress her really like uh, she's wearing like cardigans that look like they were bought from like J. Crew, mm. not to insult J. Crew. And she's, like, so tiny that she looks, like, tiny in her overwhelming mommy clothing. And then as the ghost kind of takes over, she's wearing, like, you know, low-cut, hot, tight red dresses. And I, I, I really love that. Hello, Dr. Spencer. Mrs. Spencer. <laughs> Forbidden fruit. You got a problem with that? Yeah, I heard somebody also rightfully point out that the interesting thing Harrison Ford is doing is being like incredibly uncharismatic like he's playing like a mm-hmm. real loser kind of and, and in he's spite a of being solid hot sociopath. Daddy yeah in spite of being hot it's just like ugh, you you don't like him but you don't like him for the wrong reasons you don't really realize he's a terrible husband yeah. yeah terrible husband in this you know how important this is to me. I can't help but feel that somehow you're you're trying to sabotage me. You're trying to hurt me somehow. Norman, Norman, this isn't about you. 
something is happening to me. And it's, it's not to get even or, and it's not some warped bid for attention. Something is happening in our house, whether you like it or not. The only thing that he's good at is he, he does care about the ghost, kind of. He does kind of get into like, how do I fight a ghost? Well, let's talk about yeah. the ghost for a second, because that's what a lot of people accuse this film of um, being tanked by the marketing and the fact that they reveal it's a ghost at the end. Because it's supposed to be like in the original idea is that like, OK, you think it's a cat and mouse, you think it's a cat and mouse. And then, oh, no, it's a ghost. And that's supposed to be the big the big reveal. It's similar to um, there were accusations of Terminator 2 being tanked by the, mm. the trailers, because when you were watching the movies, you were still supposed to think that Arnold Schwarzenegger was a bad guy until he says, come with me if you want to live and he was Cameron was so mad that the the trailers gave away that he was a good guy right. in this one and this is kind of the same thing where it's like the ghost is meant to be the reveal and that Harrison Ford's the bad guy is meant to be the reveal and you don't get that. yeah but I think that yeah. number one uh this movie was number eight at the box office so yeah it doesn't matter uh, same with Terminator 2 and also <laughs> the, the thing is the other movie that from 2000 that they accuse this of Robert Zemeckis's castaway, which in the trailer shows that he gets off the island and comes home. So yeah. and I think that this is a calculated move by Robert Zemeckis, who was like, doesn't matter. Do doesn't matter. <laughs> and I don't think the trailer shows that Harrison Ford is bad. I think it shows that the ghost is real uh, and then maybe the ghost is accusing him. But I, it doesn't show quite as heelish as he turns. And I will also say something I always say uh, when the subject of spoilers comes up is there is a, actually a lot of research that on average people uh, who are spoiled on a movie actually enjoy the movie more. And by enjoy, yeah. I mean they're they're heightened. Like physiologically, they are more excited to watch a movie. And it's partially because you the anticipation of knowing what's coming next actually excites you more than not knowing <laughs> in a weird way. Interesting. I think it's a safety measure too mm. with horror. I think you guarantee a bigger and younger audience that might not be. And I can, I think everyone's parents went to go see this because of the star power. Sure. And I wouldn't say everyone's parents would typically go see a horror film on a Friday yeah. night, but having those spoilers in the trailer kind of, I think anesthetize or um, soothe in anyone who would not, potentially go see a straight up horror film um and the, i think i see what you're saying by like the, the the spoiler in the trailer but with the what's interesting to me and again we've already warned there's gonna be spoilers in this episode i think most listeners will probably have seen sure. this film and if you um, haven't you should i actually really liked yeah. this one it was it was a slow burn and i appreciated it it's a good rainy day movie pause it now if you haven't seen it <laughs> but uh well, for me, the revelation is more like we know that he has cheated on his wife with this woman who's the ghost. There's a bit of a time period of a question of, you know, did she kill herself and he hit it mm. or did he actually murder her? Of course he yeah, murdered course. her. <laughs> like we know who most, you yeah. know, like victims of murder who are women are most likely murdered by someone that they know and have a sexual mm -hmm. relationship with. So the reveal for me was that, God damn, the ghost looks great. <laughs> she, like, and it's CGI, but it's she comes, you know, and I remember being haunted by this when I saw it in theaters yeah. at 15, 16, when she's underwater and the ghost basically becomes alive yeah. and grabs Harrison Ford. Like that for me is the big climax. You're not sure if it's just going to be this floating skeleton or it's full supernatural, which automatically makes it not a Hitchcock film. Mm -hmm. And it just pulls 
him down and it's such a great payoff to me again like i said i'm like why would zemeckis want to do this and the interesting thing is that he shot this in the break where tom hanks had to lose all the weight for castaway with the same crew they were like fuck it let's go shoot in new england for like three weeks and pump out another movie and that'll be fun and as i was watching it i'm like okay where is the zemeckis because he's such a visual director and then what like watching it you're like oh he's shooting from weird angles and like there's and he's creating entire glass floors to get shots because of course he is and uh and i think that really does add to the the experience of the film because a lot of people would have just shot this almost like a play because it's sort of written like a play but he takes the time to like hitchcock put you in the position where you are uh, as the viewer are there with them you're mm-hmm. in the bathtub with her trying to get your toe getting to pull the thing out oh that part freaked me right out yeah. it's, it just gave me the bad feels it's very cool i also think that it's like I, I think that it can seem like a fairly straightforward movie, but like one thing to note when you're like, ah, hey, you know, you're filming in three weeks. I think this took eight months to film. They built yeah. five bathrooms, including one in Los Angeles and one in the East yeah. Coast. Coast to coast. Like, uh, also the, the camera, like when you talk about how it's like shot kind of crazy, I think it's very fascinating because rather than you can do, there's plenty of movies that are like slavish Hitchcock movies. And this one is obviously Robert Zemeckis in instead doing like a thought experiment of like if alfred hitchcock had all the technology of today how would alfred hitchcock shoot rather than i'm going to shoot like alfred hitchcock so he does these crazy shots and it's interesting like because you're like oh these are pretty crazy but when you hear harrison ford talk about it harrison ford was like oh this is one of the most elaborately shot movies i've ever been in Mm -hmm. and he also says that it was a very interesting for his acting because the camera moves were so elaborate it was very long takes which allowed for like this much more organic acting style and the other thing i would point to that i think everybody forgets about with the like why robert zemeckis tales from the crypt baby he's the producer of tales (laughs) from the crypt and this is essentially an episode of tales from the crypt it's and to some extent um oh totally yeah he's helming this sort of gothic horror i mean that's very much comedy but using actresses who are in their middle age who are still like at the top of their game in a way that most people most actresses or actors are Mm. forced stage out yeah and i think something we can get into too becky but the like uh, you know he was essentially this is a, one of the early dreamworks movies too and he essentially mm-hmm. kind of there's, image works oh yeah well it was image works turning into dreamworks uh, right. yeah okay. this is like the last image works before it was dreamworks it's actually distributed by dreamworks i think it is now but i think at the time dreamworks didn't exist right because chicken run is the it doesn't matter let, let us not sure. get into this conversation <laughs> for god's sakes yeah. <laughs> Well, actually, <laughs> he came to them with the idea that like he he essentially said there's there was a script, but he was like, oh, I just want to do a Hitchcock ghost movie. So, OK, yeah. uh, I spoke to Sarah Kernikin, who is uh, who very graciously gave me her time. Um, she is credited with the story writing of this. And I'm just mm-hmm. uh, we will talk about Sarah Kernikin in a later episode of the podcast at some point, because I really want to talk about all I want to do strike, which is her uh, her feature fictional feature film debut as a director. And she wrote it as well. It's one of the best 90s teen sex comedies out there. It's very, very good. Um, if you haven't seen that one, go check it out. She got Weinstein, unfortunately, um, with her career similar to Lizzie but um, she is a multiple Academy Award winner. She's won twice for documentary. I've talked about her documentary Marjo on the uh, the podcast before, and she's got another documentary short called Thoth, which is an absolute delight that I highly recommend checking out. But she was actually approached by Spielberg, and Spielberg had this original idea of um, two couples who were retired, and they had a ghost in their house. And it was like, 
more in the poltergeistian sort of vein where mm-hmm. it was like the two of them versus whatever this thing was and it wasn't a horror it was more like this like quiet meditation of like you know how life was going to be now that you're older and like so there's something that's beyond you is kind of how it was going and he went to her because she has this and this is something i really recommend listeners check out if they like paranormal stuff she has had experiences with ghosts since the 70s and uh she has these incredible stories on this blog that she writes uh about like her experiences meeting the ghost of Henry, uh, harry nielsen and uh and things like that totally worth your time she's also what? written a number of fictional novels about the paranormal this woman is amazing i'm such a harry fan. nielsen like popeye soundtrack coke addict harry nielsen that Can't is correct. live. Yep. Okay. Lots of composers. She's met a, a number of ghost composers. Um, she herself is also a musician. This Again, we'll get into this woman later because her career is insane and wonderful and she's done so many things. Um, but yeah, so she was approached by Spielberg and so she wrote a treatment um, that Spielberg really liked. Um, and so out of that, the things that stayed were that um, he was a doctor, she was a musician. Uh, she consults a Ouija board and that Ouija board scene is hers, which is a really good scene. Um, and then when Spielberg was like, I don't have time for this, he passed it off to Zemeckis and at that point Zemeckis, like you said, wants to wanted to do a super natural Hitchcock movie. Mm -hmm. So he gets Clark Gregg, which is a name people might be familiar with from Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. because that's Agent Coulson. And because he had written a movie that apparently was real weird. And they were like, you're weird, but let's have you write something a little more mainstream and we'll use you. So he wrote it based on the story um, here. And that's when it became the more like cat and mouse scary dead uh, husband murderer thing. Yeah, I'm very fascinated. He has a, a spec script that I guess Sherilyn Martin of uh, DreamWorks was super into, but nobody knows what it is. It never got made. And I'm like, tell me what that weird spec script is. Yeah. Well, Choke got made, and Choke is weird, too, and that's his. Yeah, but that's an the adaptation, Palniac isn't adaptation? it? Yeah, yeah it's yeah. Palniac. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. With uh, oh, uh, Sam Rockwell. That's a bad film. That's <laughs> yes. a real bad film. Yeah, he wrote that one, and he appears in it as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But isn't it to say Zemeckis wanted to make a supernatural Hitchcock film? That's an oxymoron. Yes, it is. That is correct. And that's what kind of bothers me. I think, I mean, I do really like this film. I'm really recommending it. But there is something that's missing that could have taken it to the next level. And I feel like there's something kind of disingenuous in how it's combining the Hitchcock tropes. There's a lot of Bernard Herrmann sounding music um, with the supernatural because that's just, I don't think Hitchcock ever would have made a supernatural film, regardless of the technology. He has a gothic film. It's called Rebecca. It started his Hollywood career. <laughs> I, I feel and like there's if you go into like Alfred Hitchcock Presents, though, and stuff like that, there is supernatural stuff. Like, I just think there his movies is... didn't. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm treating, yeah, I should be, that's fair. I, I am treating Hitchcock as the filmmaker, not as the brand mm-hmm. that did television later um or even like you know there was alfred hitchcock comic books and stuff like that that were supernatural so why do you think that would be then because the only thing i can think of is i know a lot of people who don't like supernatural horror consider supernatural to be a cop-out because you can create any rules you want in the supernatural whereas where if you're bound to reality you have to work within how human beings work it's true but if you can pull off supernatural well we've seen what that means for iconic film and for box office like look at something like the sixth sense which is just the year before right 1999 you know there's supernatural films definitely are a dime a dozen in the horror genre but there are so many iconic supernatural films the ones that do make it make it big and even just looking at spielberg's career and to some extent zemeckis but um i don't know i think um 
I don't think supernatural is a cop out. I think it is just a different set of rules. And so he kind of breaks the rules, which doesn't entirely work for me in this film, but I still really loved it. <laughs> I think there's the moments of humor in here that are very Zemeckis and very dark, vicious humor. I was kind of horrified at myself. You mentioned that there's a couple that is an abusive relationship next door and um, Michelle Pfeiffer believes that the husband has murdered the wife. Um, and then they meet at a, as she confronts the husband and the, the wife is actually there. And then later at a dinner party, they like see each other from across the room and he puts his hands around his wife's neck and like playfully throttles her with like a big grin and like points at her like look killing my wife mm. and I was like okay that's horrifying but also very funny in a Zemeckis dark humor sort of way and I was worried that like I, there was something wrong with me but Ebert also called that out as being absolutely hilarious so I was like okay. it was really funny it's really yeah funny. it's also it's Miranda Otto yeah. in an extremely yes. early role she's really great in it it's very brief can we come just speaking of other redheaded interesting side characters <laughs> Diana Scarwood so which good. <laughs> most people probably won't recognize but the ones who do will recognize her from her just star-making, disastrous role in Mommy Dearest oh, yeah. as uh, Joan Crawford's daughter. She's really good in this because the Ouija board scene that you're referencing in the bathroom, Becky, is with her. What's that for? Where'd you get it? Never mind. You stole the dead woman's shoe. You have to have something of the dead woman's. Says who? Is that blood on it? I don't know. Just... Place your fingers on the message indicator. Okay. And she's kind of like written out of the film pretty early on, which is a bit disappointed by. Yeah. But uh, she she adds this campiness, this like very aware campiness to the supernatural aspect. She's, you know, into she's a psychic and she's Michelle Pfeiffer's best friend. She <laughs> buys the Ouija board. Or I think Michelle Pfeiffer says she buys the Ouija board at Kmart or something hilarious <laughs> like that. Yeah, that's where I'm like, this film actually does something kind of interesting and is successful on multiple levels. The thing I have an issue with, a lot of men write horror movies, and this happens in the fly, and it's something that drives me nuts, is that they these women who need help and who are trying to figure th everything out often don't have friends to bounce things off of that would break the plot, right? So you have that in the fly where uh, Gina Davis is like, oh, you only have abusive men in your life. Got it. That's mm -hmm. what you've chosen to do. Um, and so in this one, giving her that best friend gives her something to bounce off of. But you're right. They write her out too fast because that would that would break the plot. And they never figure out how to use other people in their environment to enhance the story or to enhance the peril, which is really interesting to me. They hmm. get rid of the daughter real quick, too. One thing that occurred to me while watching this in 2021 that did not occur to me in 2000 when I was far too young was how much of um, the horror is pinned on this being about academics and within academia, yeah. which is something that I've dipped my toe in once or twice <laughs> and absolutely rejected much to, I think, success in my life. Um, you know, they're in Vermont in this small, like, New England college town where he's this big science professor and every party and every social interaction she has, even her next door neighbors who are, you know, in this abusive relationship are, like, in his department, essentially. It really is about isolating her because she's the artist, she's a musician who's had to given up, who has given up her career to marry this um, fledgling, like, loser of an academic who's just trying to be better than his dad who established many of the theories that he is researching. So much of it is to me, I was like, I read the isolation. I read, you know, how men can eclipse women's, the career of women uh, in their lives. Um, how much, you know, you're just stuck at these 
awful academic parties. Obviously, Harrison Ford has had an affair with one of his students. That's who Amber Valletta's ghost character is. So the the adult me who's rejected academia was like, oh, yeah, I see this. I see <laughs> I see the horror element of academia so easily that I, I yeah, didn't have that as a kid. The other thing that made me laugh really hard is when um, you see Harrison Ford trying to figure out how to get rid of ghosts because he knows who this <laughs> is the ghost of. And then mm. on the list of things that he is working on is proposed suggestion exorcism by fire and fire has like multiple exclamation points is underlined it is funny that's a real tongue-in-cheek moment where he grabs the book that diana scarwood's character the witchcraft book that she's gifted uh, michelle pfeiffer's character and he like actually treats it as though he's reading a scientific paper it's a pretty fun little movie i gotta say like it's got those little pepperings and they just played it straight like horror horror horror. it's fun the other thing okay here's my big question for you guys why is it that women in these movies always play sexy instruments like the cello why is it never the oboe or the bassoon i mean are you actually asking that question genuinely i want to know bassoons man very well because if you put a giant man-sized thing (laughs) between a woman's legs and shoot it sensors don't pick up on it Mm. but it's an obvious (laughs) metaphor for fucking would be my answer becky thank you i just wanted you to say it out loud (laughs) although i don't know blowing an oboe could also be just saying there's a euphemism sorry we're gonna go in the back and blow the oboe let's go (laughs) whisper it gently into your lover's ear um all right any beautiful All right, well, when we come back, it's a visual feast for the eyes that may or may not have borrowed a few plot points from Silence of the Lambs. But hey, there's J-Lo. That's The Cell, coming up after the break. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Although not a Hitchcockian blonde, early 2000s Jennifer Lopez isn't a bad choice for a gothic-style movie heroine. Aside from the fact that she's gorgeous, she's got a magnetic presence that exudes a strength of character. She might fall into danger, but we know she'll be able to get the job done. The Cell is also a bit of a covert gothic feature, although it certainly is goth with a capital G. It's also part of a trend that, Cam, you pointed out, was big in the year 2000, the Puzzle Box movie. Alicia, why don't you walk us through the plot just briefly of this weird, weird little movie? I definitely got the harder plot. 
Yes, and you could have taken the easy choice. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it starts with two, like a par- parallel storylines that will eventually merge. And the first storyline is we have a child psychologist played by uh, JLo, who is named Catherine Dean, and she there's a new technology that allows her to enter a comatose child's mindscape, shall we say, mindscape, um, and interact with him. And so everything is very dreamlike. Um, She's treating a child who has a form of schizophrenia that causes almost something similar to like locked-in syndrome that Oliver Sacks discussed in Awakenings. That's a whole side thing that I'm obsessed with. The other storyline is that we have Vincent D'Onofrio in the most horrifying role I've ever seen him play and that is saying a lot (laughs) he's built his career playing terrifying characters like this but this is the most terrifying I know his wife couldn't live with him for like a month after seeing this film she like couldn't like sleep in the same bed as him Um, he is also suffers from a form of schizophrenia um, is a serial killer he uh, kidnaps women and this is probably where we need a trigger warning on this film. This is an extremely disturbing film yeah. for sexual violence, for um, ab- abducted women. It's really, really shattering. And for child abuse as well. Like, it's a yes, it's a pretty absolutely. brutal, as, as gross as you can get in a movie without going full, like, visual, it's real rough. And yet, I'm, spoiler alert, going to wholeheartedly recommend this film. This film was even better today watching it than when I saw it as a kid and I loved it. This is a, a film that's aged really well, I think. Um, he mur- he abducts women, kidnaps them, and they wake up in a glass room that progressively fills with water. He videotapes this. He, he never interacts with the victim who is dying. Mm-hmm. He only interacts with them as a corpse where he suspends himself from hooks masturbates over the corpse's body he's also bleached the body which is incredibly terrifying and then masturbates while watching the video of them dying it is now that the european cut of this film had a very uh, disturbing scene of vincent d'onofrio doing this that was cut out of the north american cut my understanding is if you watch this film on most streaming services we're watching the european cut because yeah. i definitely That's saw that and was yeah. like yeah, yeah. don't remember that in yeah. 2000 because well, when i watched um, it, i'm like am i watching the american and if so yeah. is this longer well, I mean, tarson's <laughs> like there's more wanking in the european and I'm yeah. like, there can't be more wanking than this they apparently yeah. asked for it is his whole thing because there was a there's an amazing interview with him and the writer about like how how this whole thing came together because this was a hell of a process. But um, he talks about the disturbing parts that some countries were down with and other countries were not. And like, this is very much a movie that has something horrible for everybody. And it just kind of got to pick your poison. Yeah. And um, he has a form of schizophrenia that basically just coincidentally, after he's kidnapped um, one of these women and they're trapped, he gets locked in in the similar ways the child in the previous part of the film. And then therefore they know that there's this victim. They've discovered the video. They know she's about to die. And so they go to Jennifer Lopez's character to essentially perform the same process that she does on this child and, you know, interact with him in his own nightmare mindscape to find out potentially where this girl who is very close to dying is being kept. This is Tarsim Singh, a director that I am obsessed with. And it's interesting to say I've seen all of his films. I can't say that they're all good. I can't say that any of them are good. I mean, I think <laughs> the cell is really good. And it doesn't matter because that 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 sort of, I was going to say quality. I don't think that's the right word. But that spectrum of bad good does not apply to Tarsim Singh. Mm-hmm. 
in the same way that it doesn't apply to like Marcel Duchamp, where you're like, is this a good painting or a bad painting? <laughs> like it, it doesn't matter. They they burst that whole categorization. Um, he was someone who came up in the music video scene. I mean, most famously, probably for R.E.M.'s Losing My Religion, which mm-hmm. seems to have a lot of reference, actually, yeah. <laughs> uh, in this film. He, I mean, just recently he did one of the highest budgeted music videos of all time for Lady Gaga. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he really was a music video guy. And you can see how I'm just amazed this got the budget it did. They must have believed in him so much because... This just isn't typical to me in the year 2000. Robert Zemeckis is allowed to make films, not not Tarsem Sings, but um, such an incredible visual artist. Uh, if you haven't seen The Fall, that's probably his best oh, film. Oh, yeah, I would agree. Um, and it's a, his most him film, I would say. Yeah, yeah, that's 2006, which I think is... I don't think there's anything between the fall. No, because and he himself. made the cell so that he could make yeah. the fall because he didn't have the money for it yet, and he needed to. This mm. was it, okay. It's wild that this film, which is so clearly there's love and there's care in this thing, mm. especially from the mm-hmm. visual angle, was very much a hired gun, and he's like, I didn't want to oh, make yeah. this fucking thing. Yeah, I, yeah. I wanted to and, make and the I fall, mean, but I couldn't. The other thing to note that's fascinating and is the reason why I think there's the big gap is the other thing, which now Tarsum is like all you know, he made the highest budgeted pepsi commercial of all time he made yeah, et cetera year, et cetera right? but this movie was made for 33 million dollars so i think the other thing he's very good at and the fall famously took so long to film because he surreptitiously filmed it while he was filming advertisements he would fly the mm-hmm. actors out he's like i'm in istanbul by this mm-hmm. set you need to come do it yeah. so yeah he made this movie for like you know 33 million compared to the 100 million for what lies beneath which and they is made like a what? ton of money oh like, yeah this is this not is, yes. this is not a failure this was no. you know mixed reviews but the reviewers who loved it who include roger who cl- included roger ebert who put this in his top 10 of the year mm-hmm. loved it for the right reasons it is god i would kill to see this in a theater again i don't mm-hmm. think i saw i, I couldn't have no, seen this in i would have been terrified <laughs> yeah. i was like i must have been rated r so i don't think i yeah. was allowed to go see it but i would love to see a screening of this properly done on 35 millimeter please because the visual references to everything from hr geiger and the the guy who designed all the aliens from the alien uh franchise um so much damien hurst and i love Mm. the damien hurst stuff in this film probably the most most disturbing scene for me is the vivisection of a horse oh yeah which is kind of based on a damien hurst painting or, or uh installation but actually, Damien Hirst ripped it off from an, a, a real, like, scientific experiment that exists, I think, in the mm. Harvard uh, Science Museum. I don't think that's what it's called. But you know what I'm <laughs> um, no, maybe it is, actually. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it is such a compendium of surreal visuals and visual culture that go way beyond the ones that we would all recognize, like Dali and Magritte, and really gets to the heart of moving images and visual culture at the beginning of the at the end of the 19th century Mm -hmm. and you know the the interesting thing becky when you're like this is a real hired gun movie is that digging around it's kind of very hard to be like who who is involved you know that mike deluca at new line was like big into it but the person who i eventually found a video that was on the 20th anniversary uh by jennifer lopez and Jennifer Lopez said that she read a version of the script when she was still in television and not really in movies. And then at some point she had an uh, interview at New Line 
and found out they had the rights to <laughs> the cell and she went you know what kind of movie i'd like to make the cell <laughs> and they were like <laughs> that's amazing uh, that blows yeah. my mind yeah. so, it and, shouldn't because she's so fucking smart it mm-hmm. shouldn't blow my mind but i just assume her coming off anaconda and films oh, like yeah. that in the late 90s that but yeah she's always had her finger on the pulse she's mm-hmm. brilliant and uh from an and she still loves age. this movie she still loves this movie still thinks, thinks tarsum is like one of the she said like it was a fascinating process obviously because she's like you are doing whatever <laughs> and you're just like i hope this works and she's like it worked so hard and she also said that it, the way he directed because it had to be so specific was like super important to her so yeah it's very fascinating i really suggest you look it up it's on jlo's own youtube channel oh, wow. she has a 20th anniversary recollection oh. including an interview a brief clip of an interview with her and robert pattinson where they're just like geeking out <laughs> over their love I of the cell i want them to work together yeah so- Badly oh, and again. Robert Pattinson, can you, you can that? tell, loves the cell and has watched the cell a million times. I could see Robert Pattinson in not a remake, but like, you know, a, a continuation of this story because he oh, could sure. do that Vince Vaughn character. Vin- <laughs> we haven't even mentioned Vince Vaughn, but oh, he yeah. plays sort of the FBI detective who um is trying to track down this that's my this, biggest that's for me that's the fly in the ointment of this movie if oh, you take yeah. that character yeah. and that plot line out just give me j-lo that's all i want i just i think that's the for me the part him, him that's when it becomes to silence the lambsy and the script starts mm. to feel sure. derivative yeah take that total plot line out and it's great i agree i think tara subkoff who we haven't mentioned who plays the victim that mm-hmm. is progressively in a cell with more and more water um She's so good. She's we we mentioned being Weinsteined earlier in this episode. She's another instance of someone who was horrifically Weinsteined, um, someone who should have been a much more popular um, actress who then became, I would say, a Tarsum Singh inspired fashion designer. She's mm. the the inventor of Imitation of Christ, which oh, cool. kind of still exists as a, a fashion brand called Imitation. But I remember watching growing up on fashion television and seeing like post the cell Tara Subkoff having like the biggest week at Paris Fashion Week um, because she was using these very eco Ishioka who did all the art direction and the, um, not the art direction, the costume design for this film. Very like surreal, but hearkening back to Catholicism, hearkening back to religious iconography of the 16th century, things we would recognize in paintings. Uh, it's such an interesting lineage that I think about with her just playing this like blonde victim who then used this film in some ways to inspire an alternate career for her when Harvey Weinstein um, blackmailed her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about the original version of the script. We talked about the evolution of what lies beneath. We should probably talk about what the original version of this was. And it's, sure. it's kind of interesting because it sits a little more um, lajete meets altered states where it was mm-hmm. a bunch of scientists who have developed developed a drug that allows them to hunt down people and they get in like little hammocky sort of things. Um, and then they have these like they have to find the killer in that way. But it only yeah. took place really in one room. And like they you never actually went into their dreams to find the killer. They were just in the hammock. Julianne Moore was apparently very interested in it. And all the studios were like, this is like a $10 budget. Like, this is not going to be an interesting visual film. We're not going to wait for the blink. This came from a screenwriter named um, Mark Protosevich, who has disowned this film in its entirety, um, saying, you know, it's nothing like the version that he wrote. And I think, Becky, what you're referencing with the kind of hammocks and the, you know, the acid trip nature of it is much more his script. I don't really want to see that film. I've seen La Jete. Yeah. Um, I want to see Tarsum Singh. And I think we haven't said enough about the visuals in these nightmare sequences. They are very upsetting. 
they are both sure there's lots of references to visual culture but they're also there's ones that i'm just like this is just purely out of his mind this has no referent like when he pictures you know vincent d'onofrio in this moving cape that is surgically Mm -hmm. implanted into his back that can envelop and the way they do i think it's Maybe it's CGI. It might actually be practical. I don't know. But the way he worked with Iko Ishioka, who had previously um, won the Academy Award for Bram Stoker's Dracula, and even reused some of the materials and exact costumes from Bram Stoker's Dracula in this film, um, it is alarming. I've never... Nothing looks like this. Nothing did prior to it. Nothing has since. Um, There's some imitators, for sure, that can never do any... Even a stitch of this the same way... Vincent D'Onofrio's, oh God, he's so scary. It's so scary. Yeah, I, there's there's a lot of interesting stuff. Uh, like, uh, I, I think that now uh, Mark Brodasevich likes it because that interview you shared, Becky, of the, they were so. talking, yeah, they were talking yeah. to each other. And he also said that he agreed that the process of, he essentially stripped down his script to just an outline and gave it to Tarsum and then Tarsum was allowed to do whatever he wanted. Uh, because it's mostly crazy visuals, obviously. Yeah. But th- another thing that I also want to link it to, which you will like, Alicia, is uh, Mark Protasevich. He cut. This seems like his first script, but his first big Hollywood thing was actually Batman Unchained, which was the unmade mm-hmm. fourth Batman movie, which would have starred your favorite Nicolas Cage as the Scarecrow, mm-hmm. and <laughs> was heavily involved Batman being Scarecrowed. And going through his mind, fighting all the other bad guys. And it was famously supposed to have Jack Nicholson return as a like mental version of the Joker and Mother Danny DeVito and what have you. So I think that <laughs> the crazy thing is, in many ways, the cell is that script. Yeah. <laughs> but like, pretend yeah. J-Lo's Batman. But the, the other thing that I really like, which I think really makes it stand out beyond, I, I know a lot of people are like, oh, there's a lot derivative here. Number one, I think you're completely ignoring that she, science fiction goes into a guy's mind. That is not, that is a, uh, there's no other movie like that. Even The Cell 2 is plot, not like that. Yeah, the plot elements of the, that sit very... Sure. Um, Sans Lambs is the biggest one I can pull. The other one that I, mm. I had issues with until I was like, oh, it's an homage, it's fine, is the Twin yeah. Peaks stuff where he's singing Lambsy Notes and it's uh, young women wrapped in plastic found on beaches um, who are blonde. Like this, I was like, oh, okay, no, no, you're just yeah. doing homage, it's fine. But keep in mind in 2000, Twin Peaks didn't have the same cultural yeah. cachet yes. that it does in 2021. Like. Agreed. I probably saw Twin Peaks. I grew up watching it, but came back to it as an adult in like 2001, 2002, because it hadn't. Yeah, that DVD it was like on VHS release, whatever in 2000. That was. Yeah. yeah. So I do think Tarsum Singh even had his finger more on the pulse of like how important this TV show that we need to re- remind listeners and ourselves of that appeared on ABC before the wonderful world of Disney mm. <laughs> in 1989, 90, 91. <laughs> How he was really even like before other people yeah. were obsessed with Twin Peaks doing and this. I, I would also say that like a lot of those references you can like t- what Tarson would say is like because he's fully like fine with being like, yeah, I'm just it's a, a painting that I made a version of. But all mm. that stuff is iterative, too, because like you could say that Mersey Dotes is a reference to 36 Hours, the old movie where they drive a guy crazy playing Mersey Dotes or like yeah. the ruling class and all that body stuff. I mean, I think always think Laura Palmer reminds me a lot of uh, River's Edge. Yeah. that corpse you know the, yeah. the white woman lying in the beach you're absolutely right so there's always sense. you know yeah. everybody's just uh referencing each other but i do think that there's a lot that stands out in this movie especially on rewatch 
number one, I would say that on the rewatch, I seems to remember in my mind that Vince Vaughn stuff looming actually a lot larger than it does. There is probably 15 minutes where Jennifer Lopez is captured and he has to go save her. But but then he doesn't. The, he fails, doesn't he? Yeah, she he, saves he herself. Fails. Yes. Yeah, she there's no herself. reason to have that character. Yeah. He 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 like kind of like yells at her. But <laughs> the reason to have that character, which I actually think is a very fascinating part of this movie, which now I feel like I have hung on to much more, which I think the other movies, The Silences of the Lambs, the the other things don't do, is that her character is obsessed with not justice but she is obsessed with the humanity of these killers. And that's the kind of fascinating thing. And it, it really comes down to uh, an argument that the two of them have where uh, he tells this d very disturbing story about a pedophile who murdered a little girl and essentially like, oh, I wish I killed that pedophile or I wish I put that pedophile mm -hmm. in jail forever. And she stops him because he completely paves over the fact that that pedophile was horribly abused. And mm -hmm. she's like, you don't, that doesn't mean anything to you that that person was terribly abused and he's kind of like no well whatever i'm just a cop so it's kind of fascinating point. it doesn't in the end the point you kind of don't know because she does find the humanity in this killer and then ultimately just decides she has to kill even the goodness in him um which is kind of sad like it's meant to be tragic she's trying to save the goodness and there is just no saving it and it, it is physically embodied by a child actor so mm -hmm. like in that mindscape you have what's called i think king starger which is the terrifying snake-like freakish yeah. and then you have the child starger and um i've never seen a film do it quite like this more to your point cameron where it's just like i couldn't believe how much empathy i felt for the most terrifying creature I've seen on film <laughs> because you do see how his father abused him. She's in, yeah. she's locked in a closet watching through the slats in a very blue velvet reminiscent uh, mm. scene watching how his father is abused <laughs> Standing him. in a bowl of eels. One of yes. these oh great, my God. weird <laughs> But it's <laughs> all that nightmare. Images. But that's the thing. When you enter someone's mind and you're saying you're entering your dreams, you now get full permission to go weird dream logic oh, all yeah. you like. I Just mean, have I some love, weird stuff. I love all of his anecdotes about the way the studio treated him. Because uh, <laughs> like one of them is he wanted, he told them he's like, well, I want this to be operatic like Dracula. And they're like, nobody went to see Dracula. And he's like, Okay, and then he's like, "I got, I got Yushioka to do the costume. It's gonna be exactly <laughs> Who like." Who he Dracula. would work with for the like oh, yeah. until her death. I mean, yeah, they like... are made for each other, uh, yeah. absolutely. And, but then the other fascinating thing is he's like, "Oh, I wanted to have these crazy dreamscapes, this surreal stuff." And, and I think it was Bob Shea was like, "Oh yeah, we'll show you the best movie for that." And it was <laughs> a Nightmare on Elm Street four. Mm -hmm. And he's like, "He's like, listen, I love a Nightmare on Elm Street one, but four. And he basically said he, he burst I actually into the did room think and about said, that film while watching this. He, he burst into the room and said, "Boys, don't worry. All we have to do is beat Nightmare on Elm Street four. We're fine." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Whereas like Tarsim Singh is not just looking at like Damien Hirst's catalog. He's also like watching the Brothers Quay. Oh yeah. And, like there's lots are they of that. Belgian or Dutch or French. I can't remember. The like uh, stop motion, you know, brothers who make mm -hmm. these insane animations that are like Marilyn Manson before Marilyn Manson and Floria yeah. Sigismondi before Floria Sigismondi and it's yeah it's god I have so much respect for him I can't wait to go and visit I think I'm going to rewatch all of his films because I was nervous to watch The Cell and mm -hmm. then well I was very upset I did watch it at 11 a.m. to try to like counteract <laughs> <laughs> so horrifying this film is um and I don't like snakes I definitely don't like eels so the idea of that is terrifying but uh did you actively watch the part with the intestinal crank or did you close your eyes for that part so our um 
work from home setup is that the room with my TV is adjacent and off to where my partner's <laughs> office is. And he works with headphones. And so um, and I was wearing headphones, so I wouldn't disturb him watching that particular part of the movie. I freaked out, started squirming, um, woke up my cat. And then so my partner like looked over like in a meeting. He's in a Zoom meeting, like a staff meeting, looks over, sees that on the TV at like 11 a.m. And then it was like, yeah, we got to buy a condo or something because we can't work this way. You like, guys need separate TVs for your murder. We need separate TV rooms and separate offices. And we'll have to move out of the city as a result because yeah. of the cell. <laughs> but yeah. you'll get to be able to watch your disturbing, disturbing movies. Maybe. You need a buried secret saw style trap room to watch your your saw <laughs> movies. Cam, you did make the, make a reference that this like obviously the saw movies have borrowed from this the intestinal yeah. crank the the like puzzle boxes with the with the water coming in. That's it's there's a lot of that in there. Yeah, and I I mean I do think to saw's credit I think that quite often you, again you have a great production designer that knows a visual art knows and I mean I'm sure Tarson was pulling from the same medieval torture devices. And, what have you like it's all all it's all together all these movies can i also mention that the the production designer on this is tom foden i believe it's foden not foden uh who was the art director as well for closer like the nine the nine inch nails closer oh, cool. music video yes. so yeah so you're like nine inch nails all over this, this. you mentioned this Marilyn Manson, but yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> i mean i i will also always push people to and i think i wrote a blog about it but e elias marriage who mostly his only other big movie is uh shadow of the vampire but he did this mm-hmm. 90s very forgotten but if you were ever in a video store there's this movie called begotten that he made Mm -hmm. that is just kind of like insane goth visuals it's like (laughs) an insane silent film uh but you know it's a video you should pass somebody and be like here's a cursed tape you're cursed (laughs) now like it's kind of nonsense but i think it absolutely informed so much of disturbing films of the 90s and 2000s uh, and I think you see a lot of that here too. And I love that he then goes on to make Mirror Mirror with Lily Collins and Julia Roberts. Oh yeah, I mean, <laughs> Just, which is also kind of visually a, bananas. It's that fun thing because Tarsum is like as much, and I think The Fall is like absolutely like an artistic masterpiece. Don't yeah. get me wrong, but I do like that he also is just willing to be like. Yeah, immortals. It's just it's it's like three hundred, but wilder. <laughs> like he just will he'll he will also apply this eye to anything. Com- I mean, his commercials are just, yeah, they're they're commercials, but they're totally fun. For Pepsi, this is a Pepsi yeah. commercial. That I mean, was, I the Beyonce, the Beyonce Britney Spears pink in the Gladiator Arena Pepsi commercial is his, mm-hmm. and it was one of the uh, the most expensive and biggest deal commercials of its time. I understand. Oh, he's amazing. Yeah, big fans. There are so many good. I mean, I love the. Your anecdote that you brought up, Becky, about that Damien Hurst thing, where that he said that was the one time where they were like, you know, Damien Hurst loves to sue people. Uh, you should be careful with this reference. And that's where their production designer brought like, hey, here's a million people who did it before Damien Hurst that he's ripping off. And he said he got a message from the lawyers that was like just a, a single line telegram that said, I encourage Mr. Hurst to sue us. <laughs> oh man, you rule lawyers. You're like, I would them. like to take this case. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that would be the dream case to go up against Damien Hurst yeah. and show, reveal all of his <laughs> ripping off. Oh yeah, just... I mean, I just love that whatever thing they laid out to the lawyer, like made the lawyer angry enough that he's like, I want to do this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I want to take this guy on. <laughs> 
Uh, if people want to go read this interview, which I do recommend you do because it's the writer and the director and it's like everything you could possibly want to know about it is very comprehensive. That's on whattowatch.com and the article is called Unlocking the Cell. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, it's really, really good and really comprehensive. Um, I think that's just about everything then. So once again, Cameron Maitland, I want to say thank you so much for joining us. Oh, well, thank you, Becky. Uh, there's lots of good weird ghosty movies from 2000 we 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 had to sort through them all so yeah go go back to 2000 and see who's getting murdered you'll yeah. enjoy it I, I miss that i almost wonder if sixth sense kind of killed the genre for a while because like it kind of like exacerbated it because everyone's like we have to have our own twist movies because people love twists um and then they just sort of disappeared for a while and we haven't really gotten them back we just got yeah. really sad mega violent dramas like I, I, I think foreign films have taken over this a lot like the adult thriller and the the kind of weird high concept they're out there just keep your eyes peeled you know subscribe to to shutter or hollywood suite we we try to find dig up the funny foreign popular ones but there's there's they're out there and i mean keep up with tarsum honestly because like we say even if this is not your bag uh his movies are always worth a watch regardless of maybe the plot or the script (laughs) (laughs) but the watch is what matters film is a visual medium we have Mm. to allow this alicia fletcher thank you so much for joining us and watching some visual medium that upset you once again (laughs) thank you becky i do want to quote the peter travers review for the cell where he wrote it clings to memory even when you don't want it to. <laughs> Just to let our listeners know, I will be thinking about the visuals of this film well into like season 20 of this podcast. Because <laughs> they are, you know, they are unbelievably uncanny. And uh, I have not slept well in the four nights since watching. <laughs> Jeez. We got some good good stuff coming up for season three that uh, we're going to put Alicia through and it's going to be mm-hmm. awesome. Um, one of the things I think I just want to say briefly that I'm fascinated by is that this did not feature an, uh, a tie-in song by J-Lo at any point. And I believe that is both a missed opportunity and an <laughs> excellent choice. Yeah. Could it have been two years later, it would have. It That's was yeah. just on the cusp of uh, J-Lo tie-in songs. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> All right, and you can join us next week where we are going to get our spirit fingers ready for the last episode of Season 2. It's Bring It On and Center Stage. That's coming up next week. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Want to email the podcast? You can do so at podcast at hollywoodsuite.ca. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial-free, Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen on four HD channels and Hollywood Suite On Demand. Subscribe today at hollywoodsuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted by Becky Shrimpton and produced by Becky Shrimpton, Alicia Fletcher, and Cameron Maitland, and featured Cameron Maitland and Alicia Fletcher as guests. Supervising producer is Ryan Maines. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Creative consultant is Emily Gagne. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.